learning all the ups and downs of business, trying to order this and this is not going to arrive or this is too expensive, I can't use this and trying to sort out what business is possible to start out with because at the start we were like, yeah, we can do this, you can do this and then before you know it, you haven't got enough chefs but you've got a hundred booked for lunch and that sort of thing, you know. This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Taking things to the nth degree, nose to tail, and a more sustainable approach has become the mantra du jour. But for Simon Furley, implementing protocols and being creative in the kitchen to fulfill that kind of ethos is just one of the joys of the trade. Simon, how are you? Uh, good, thank you. Very good. Excellent. It's great to get you on the show. You're doing some uh, amazing things uh, up there in Queensland. Tell us a bit about what you're doing. Um, so it's a little restaurant um, called The Paddock up in uh, Beachmont, so up in the um, up in the hinterland there of the Gold Coast. And um, yeah, we're just cooking as hyper-local as possible, nose to tail, sort of root to shoot cookery, um, just real nice sort of honest, a um, little bit of a hint of fine dining, but also it's got a, like a little rustic t- charm to it as well. That, that kind of um, hyper-local and nose-to-tail sort of approach has become a hallmark of what you're doing. What's, what's some of the sort of challenges of taking that approach? Um, well, we're super, just basically limiting ourselves. Um, so, like, we'll come up with an idea for a dish or something like that, and you're like, no, we can't use that. It's not local. We can't use this. It's not local. So we don't, we, we don't buy hardly anything in so everything is made from scratch um so we we, and all that sort of thing so we don't buy any sauces or like we don't buy soy sauce we don't use any sort of um asian ingredients we don't add any if we need to create umami or something like that we do it all from scratch ourselves through fermentation and all that sort of thing so for a chef that sort of approach what what are the benefits for you um you know given that sort of uh you're restricting yourself but does it have a positive effect on your creativity a hundred percent. Yeah. You just have to be, you have to be creative, um, every other day just to sort of come up with, you know, if you've only got one onion and that's all you can get is some just nice local onions, you just got to figure out a million ways to use those onions, you know? So, um, yeah. And in, in all aspects, so like, obviously, um, if there's bad weather, so I'm supposed to get watermelons on Friday and if it rains too much and then the sun's come out, those watermelons, um, have been spoiled. So I can't use those. And I've got to come up with something else, which I've already got in store. Um, and that sort of thing. Tell us a little bit about the region and some of the produce that you do have access to. Uh, so it's known as the scenic rim. So the scenic rim just on the, behind the Gold Coast in the hinterland. It's 4,000 square kilom- kilometers of sort of mountain ranges, waterfalls, and farm. Um, it's well known for its um, dairy. So it's a really good dairy place. Um, and also for its um, small little micro farms growing um, cattle, um, sheep, uh, pigs as well. And um, yeah, and a lot of good veggies. You just mentioned pigs there. Do you have any sort of connections with the local pig farmers that you utilise through the paddock? Yes. So I use a farm called Tomarup Farm. They're a multi, multi award winning um, uh, pig, pig farmers and also uh, they do lots of other stuff as well. But yeah, they're well known um, in the region and Australia as well. Um, yeah, I'm, I talk to them every week um, for our pork and things like that. Um, they do the milk-fed pork, so everything left over from their cows, which doesn't go to their little veal um, cows, then they feed to their pigs. So that yeah, so the milk-fed, um, biodynamically raised vegetable offcuts go to them. Um, so they're pretty well looked after. What sort of impact does that sort of milk-fed sort of pasture-raised pork, what does it have on the meat? 
Um, it's very, um, you can see like the fat which goes through the pork itself. Um, you can see the lines, got, there's a sort of that, that marbling through it as well. It's very light, it's a very light meat. Um, sometimes you can look at it and get confused that it might be veal because um, it's not like it's not like a strong pink it's more like a a whitish sort of color um and the pigs they have are generally all um heritage um breed um so like british heritage breed um and then yeah for the cooking as well um, there's a lot of there's a lot of fat on it so there's a lot of rendering down and that sort of thing but we collect all that for other uses and stuff yeah i want to explore sort of what you are doing to sort of use the whole beast there at the paddock but um Take us back to when you were young. Where, where did you grow up and what sort of role did food play for you? So I grew up in a little town, a little well-known city in the UK. Um, it's quite small for me, but um, known as uh, Bath, Bath in the UK. Um, so a little ro a Roman city. Um, not that many restaurants there growing up. There's a lot of chains and that sort of stuff. Um, growing up there, most of sort of my memories from food, I'd say, have come from my, my gran, my mum's mum. After school, we'd go to her house and I'd sort of sit and she'd make, you know, she, she grew all her sort of um, potatoes and cabbages and all that sort of stuff in the garden. Um, and then she, you know, she cooked dinner. So that I sort of remember that. I remember also there being quite a few slugs in some of my cabbages when I was a kid going through. Uh, I remember that well and just thinking, oh, that's pretty gross. Um, but yeah, and then also I remember sitting watching, it, it didn't really connect with me until years later, but I remember sitting watching every sort of Wednesday, Thursday, Friday at six o'clock um, in the evening, you'd have um, Heston Blumenthal in search of perfection on for, for about 30 minutes. And then I remember after that, it was like ready, steady, cook, and then it would be something else. And it was like two hours of cooking every day, which she would watch and then I'd watch with her, but it never ingrained with me until years later. Um, so yeah, that's sort of it. And then being younger, I remember one of my first food memories, I think is when my mum, well, me and my family, we went to Greece. I think I was about six years old and I had swordfish for the first time with like lemon, loads of lemon over the top and loads of pepper. And I can still taste it now. And I just thought, what is that? Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, I think that's probably my earliest food memory. Uh, what sort of led to a career in food? Was that something you'd always thought about? No, I wanted to be um, in school. I was looking at doing drama, and I wanted to become a stuntman. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I wanted to be a movie stuntman. Um, so I did like uh, I did courses in martial arts, and then gymnastics, and drama, and that sort of thing. And that was the plan. And then when I finished school, I was going to go to like this kind of at the time it wasn't so accessible um, to do to do stunts like it is now. You could just do it on YouTube now and start a career somewhere. Um, back then, you had to go to a sort of school in in London. And it was like a yeah, stunt school and it was expensive. And I remember my dad saying, nah, you can't, we can't, we can't afford that. So um, I remember just thinking, oh, okay. So I just go, I started washing up in a local sort of um, hotel. And um, yeah, I just sort of, I was washing up there and I remember seeing all the chefs and chatting with them. And slowly over the space of like a year, I just sort of start helping out here and there. Uh, when a chef wouldn't turn up and things like that. And then about a year later, I, I was like, okay, I'll go to college. Um, got enrolled into college into like doing um, two days a week at college and then one night a week doing pastry at college, doing like a pastry masterclass. And then um, sort of started there really. What were the sort of really important venues and people that you worked with as you started to build your career in Europe? Um, so I worked at um, quite a few, uh, starting at a few Rosetta restaurants around Bath and then a Michelin star restaurant um, in Bath uh, and, then, and then went on to work at the Michelin star restaurant, The Olive Tree, which is now I think is Bath's only one Michelin star restaurant. Um, worked there for a while and um, under the time I was under my head chef, Nick Brody. He was a bit of a, 
um, a wild animal at the time. I'm not sure what he's doing now, but um, he was doing at the time. He was doing very well for the the southwest, but he was um, he was pretty an angry dude. Um, I think that's one thing I learned is I don't want to be that guy, to be honest with you. Um, yeah, and then um, on that going through, um, I just sort of I'd always wanted to travel. My main the main reason behind my behind becoming a chef was hearing these other chefs who've been like, Oh yeah, I've just come from back from this and I've just come back from this and I've been working here, whether it be Sydney or they've come out from Japan or they've just done a ski season in Switzerland that always inspired me. And that's sort of where I was like, okay, well, if I become a chef, then I can get paid to travel and then I get paid. Someone else is paying me to do their job and I get, you know what I mean? It's like on their money, they're paying me to go around the world. And then that's sort of where I sort of lined the two up. You spent um, quite a few years in Europe as a private chef. Do you have any stories of some of the experiences you had doing that? Yeah, yeah, plenty. So I basically, um, I thought what I'd do is I'll get my get my skills set down um, in the Michelin star restaurants, and then what I'd do is because for most to get on most yachts or become a private chef, you need a bit of experience working in the Mediterranean. Um, so I went and worked in a restaurant in Greece, in the south of Greece, for a year. Um, uh, in Civita, it was a beautiful five-star hotel, uh, a lot of English-speaking chefs, and I just worked there for a year as, um, as like a, a junior sous at the time. Um, and it was very, it was just very simple Mediterranean-style food, just to get an idea of the region. And um, I wasn't, I wasn't entirely sure I wanted to do, but I remember going down to the harbour and a chef coming off this huge 60-metre super yacht. And he came off and he had a cigarette and all that. And I was like, right, well, that's where I want to go next. That's the plan. Let's get on. Let's go on that. So I had a quick chat with him. I flew home like about six months later and then I was just Googling what you need to work on a super yacht or what you need to be in this this finer, high-end industry. Um, you have to have a qualification called an STCW, which is in, in English. Uh, in England, it's about £3,000 to do it. And you have to do that once a year. To, it's like a safety course you have to be to have to work on super yachts. Yeah. So I, you, have, you, go, you did this full-on firefighter training and first aid training and all sorts of things. Um, it's crazy. You go into like a shipping container, they set fire to it. You have to find your way out. It's pretty full on. Um, so you do that. And then um, I was like, okay, now, I, now I'm qualified to do that. Let's go work in Europe. And the thing is about being a private chef, unless you've done it, it's really difficult to get a job, to get a first gig. Like you have to have experience to do it, but you can't, you can't get experience if you haven't done it sort of thing. So um, I managed to get a job, me and my wife, well, me and my girlfriend, who's now my wife at the time, managed to get a job on a yacht. We should have known straight away, really, because it came up on Gumtree, and we were like, okay. So we got this job on this on this supposedly 30-meter sailing yacht, which is going to take us all around Croatia. And um, we flew out for the job. The flights were all paid for. We're like, oh, this is good. This is a good start. So we flew out. We landed in Croatia and got to the boat, and it was an absolute, it was a sailing boat, and it was an absolute wreck. It wasn't ready. It wasn't sanded. It wasn't painted. The captain was living on board like some pirate. It was, um, it was like, it was horrendous. And I was just, and he's like, I said, want a guest coming on board? And he's like, oh, a Friday. So if you start getting your menus together, and I went and looked in the kitchen in the galley, and it was just not even ready. There was, there was, there was, there was, there was books in the oven. Um, it was, it was like, what have we signed up for? Um, so we, we did some, I, I've never, I've never sanded down a boat. So we, we spent like a week sanding down and well, four days sanding down before the guests arrived. The captain was in the cabin, the main cabin for the guests. There was black mold all over the walls and he was painting over it with just white paint to cover it up before they arrived. Yeah, it was, it was pretty bad. And, um, the guests arrived and within two days they were like, we're leaving. We're off of here. 
and we left with them so we got off the boat and i was like i'm not this is horrendous we're not doing this again um so then we flew back to the uk pretty pretty heartbroken like that was our first yacht and our first plan um as we arrived in the uk got home and i got a phone call about nine probably about 10 o'clock at night from a um an agent her name's justin murphy she's well known all over england now for being a, a super high-end yacht chef plus michelin star chef um sort of transfer so she she finds good chefs to put a michelin star restaurant she's she's amazing yeah justin murphy she, she's pretty cool you should um check her out anyway she um she rang me about 10 o'clock at night and she said i've got a job for you it's on a proper real motor super yacht it's a, you've got to be there. You've got to be in, in Palma, Mallorca tomorrow at 9 a.m. At 9 a.m. with your menu, with your food, ready to go for a week for these Russian, uh, sorry, English millionaires. And I was like, uh, okay. And she's like, you either say yes now or this is like, you don't. And I said yes. So I jumped, uh, I jumped on a taxi, got the taxi to the airport, which is a two-hour drive. While I'm on the taxi, I'm ringing through two pl Spanish places in Palma. I have no idea what to do. I don't speak Spanish. And I'm trying to order vegetables and fruit and meat to be sent to this yacht. So then when I get there at 6 a.m., I can start prepping this menu. So I get there, arrive. The boss arrives on the... And then all of a sudden... So I'm on this yacht. I'm prepping stuff. I'm getting everything ready. The first time I've ever worked in a proper yacht. Um, and then the, this owner arrives, this English guy. And he's like, oh, nice to have you on board, everything else. And then for the whole week, it was just full on, absolutely like crazy. Like anyone in the yacht service, you're working like 18 hour days. You don't sleep because like you go to sleep at like 10 o'clock at night. And then at three in the morning, the boss's wife will wake up and go, oh, can I just get um, a sandwich? Or can I just get this? And it's just... It's just full on. Um, but after that one week, you get the paycheck and you're like, wow, that's, that's the most money I've ever seen in my life. Um, at the time, you know, I was um, yeah, 20, 24 years old and that was insane. Um, so I flew my girlfriend out at the time, literally just got a, a, a flight straight out. And then we spent a month in Palmer. Um, and then after that month of just enjoying that money, we got another job on um, another super yacht for an Australian millionaire who made his money in the mines. I think he's a billion now. And um, we spent three months with him. We went around Italy, through, uh, through all the way through Italy, and then up to Croatia again, and just did lots of amazing things, seen some amazing stuff. Um, on that trip, our, we, we, we pulled over next. you remember the, the, the cruise ship which um, um, sank the Costa Concordia, that one? Yeah, off of Italy. We pulled up there for a day to um, have a look at it, and we lost one of our anchors. So our anchor got lost at sea, like disappeared. $25,000 anchor just snapped off and disappeared. And our captain, who was Australian, um, dove down to try and get it, to bring it to tie line to it and bring it back up. And he actually got the bends. So we had to, yeah, so he had to be, luckily we were near the Costa Concordia, which has a bends displacement center where he could get taken by helicopter and got looked after. He's actually, he's fine now, which is awesome. But at the time it was very bad. Um, but we were stuck with no captain at sea, um, just floating around, like no one in charge um, for about two weeks. Um, and yeah, just, just on, just on anchor. Um, so the whole, the whole thing was put to like, we couldn't do anything for two weeks. So we were just stuck on board. I'd zip out every day on the little tender to go pick up food for the owner and stuff. And yeah, that was a wild, that was a wild couple of months. Yeah, yeah, there's quite a few, like, the yachting industry is very, same as the catering industry or the chefing industry is very, there's some crazy ups and downs. What's, what sort of things do you cook on sort of private yachts in those circumstances? It, it depends. If you're, um, 
if you're doing um, like rotational, so you have different guests each week. So someone owns the yacht, but you cook for different guests each week. Um, then you just you come up with your sort of menus and that sort of thing. If you're cooking privately, um, so before I came to Australia, the job I had, I was I was a private chef for a Russian oligarch for for a year, and his family only wanted fish. That's all they wanted. They just wanted fish and salad, um, which I didn't. You know, I, it was fine because I knew there'd be a sort of a means to an end, money wise and traveling wise and that sort of stuff. But yeah, it was hard. Like you're trying to be creative, and they're just like, "No, we just want fish and salad." So yeah, it, it depends. Like some people want really high end stuff, other people want relaxed stuff. Like the Australian guy, he literally just wanted steak and chips at the time um, for the whole time I was on board with him. But his wife wanted high end stuff, so he'd be cooking a tasting menu for his one wife on board, and then just for him, steak and chips. Yeah, and then his son would then his son would come in at four a.m. from the club and want a pizza. You know, it's um, yeah, yeah. They call it the, they call it the golden handcuffs working on yachts because like the money's worth it, but you are kind of yeah, you're, you're chained to them basically. So yeah, how how did you end up in Australia? So after that, after all the yachts for four years and private chalets and all that sort of stuff, um, I was like, I want. That's me and my wife. We both were like, let's let's move on from Europe. We've seen. You know, once you go around Italy five times in a, in a yacht and you've seen the same harbors and same towns, we wanted something different. And I was like, well, at the time we were living in Monaco um, in the on the boss's villa for six months and then on his yacht for six months. And living in Monaco is as, much, as nice as it is, it's not really real. Like, it's not really a real place to live. Um, and I missed, me and my wife are massive adventure people. We love going out to see wildlife. We love exploring and that sort of thing. And um, I was like, let's try something new. I came to Australia backpacking when I was 19 but I ran out of money within like a month in Sydney. And I was like, so um, I flew home and then I was like, let's go to Australia. Let's try, try and, you know, do a bit in Australia. So our plan was just to come over for two years. I applied for a couple of jobs um, with like, I think it's the world's 50 best lodges. I just sort of applied to all of those and seen what was around, um, you know, and what good restaurants were in those lodges and that sort of thing. So originally I was supposed to come over as sous chef for the Peak Restaurant, um, which is one of the Spices um, restaurants. I'm going to go sous chef for that. And then at the time, Ash Martin was just starting to build um, Hidden Vale, Spices Hidden Vale, um, which was the old homestead. And um, I spoke to him on the phone. And then we, uh, about two weeks later, me and my wife flew over, landed in Brisbane. And then Ash picked us up and then uh, ended up staying in Australia until now. So eight years. What was it about Australia that made you stay? I think a bit of everything, really. I love the, I love the people. I think generally... Um, the people are amazing. They're, they're very sort of, they're very helpful and they'll always go out their way to help you. Well, the people I've met anyway. Um, I love the food, the produce over here. The, obviously the weather is amazing. Uh, and the wildlife, like where we live two hours in from Brisbane, you constantly get encounters with amazing wildlife, whether it be, you know, a snake in the roof of the kitchen or a kangaroo trying to get into the restaurant or, you know, all that sort of thing. Like I really enjoy that, that sort of thing. What's it been like for you sort of, delving into that world of the hyper-local and what were the challenges when you first sort of started that? Um, just deliveries because you've got one lady who grows radishes a week, but she's not got the means to deliver to you, so you have to go pick stuff up. So on a, on a morning, myself or Ash or one of the team would do a three-hour round trip to pick up radishes, local Murray cod, local freshwater crayfish, some tomatoes, and you do that three times a week before you even start your day of prepping. Yeah, and I do that now. Every week I go pick up, I do a two and a half hour round trip to pick up fish and then pick up other bits and bobs um, per week. It's sort of, yeah, like, because no one's going to deliver because you're in the middle of nowhere 
uh, unless and the only ones who will deliver will be the bulk big bulk companies and you sort of want to as much as their ingredients are beautiful you know you want to sort of bring money and economy to the local local guy down the road who's growing four watermelons a week you know yeah. um these days where you are is beach uh, mont estate the um but you you've sort of been there from the beginning with the paddock to help build the restaurant from the ground up what was that process like yeah it was good um uh yeah got there pretty much from the start um and well cam matthews was there like a month or two before me uh just as a sort of slip in before i started um and he uh yeah it was good like just learning all the ups and downs of business trying to order this and this is not going to arrive or this is too expensive i can't use this and this is not going to work this day and all that sort of thing uh, and just trying to sort out what business is possible to start out with because at the start we were like yeah we can do this you can do this and then before you know it you haven't got enough chefs but you've got a hundred book for lunch and that sort of thing you know so that was always that's always sort of hard and where we are staffing is a massive issue because we're on a mountain and there's only about you know, it's an hour either way to come to work, whoever you are. Um, so, you know, it's a big commitment. You've got a, a real sort of paddock to plate philosophy uh, there going on. And you briefly mentioned the pigs. So tell us about that relationship. Do you get whole pigs in or how, how does it work? Yes. So I talked to Kay or Dave, the um, Tom Rupp Farm pig farmers. And I, they'll say, I'll say, hi, can I order, say, for two and a half months time, three months time, can I get three pigs again? Yeah, and they'll say, okay, cool. We'll um, we'll make sure they're on this. Make sure they're on this diet or this and this, or or they probably they might not be ready side because it hasn't rained enough, so they haven't got enough um, stuff coming through. The cows haven't done enough, you know what I mean? So it's all that sort of thing. And then Dave will deliver, yeah. So he'll deliver three or two whole pigs. Generally, they're about probably about thirty. 30 to 40 kilos a time, something like that, or sometimes a bit less. So they're about two years old, generally, when we have them. Um, and then, uh, yeah, they'll bring them in. Uh, we normally have them, so they normally take them straight to the abattoir. They'll go through the abattoir, and then they'll pick them up the same day. Um, and then they'll come straight to us, basically. That's that's the way they like to do it, so they know exactly what's happening with their animals. They hate the idea of dropping animals off and leaving them in there overnight. So they like to, they like to do it that day and then get the pigs to us that day. That's a very different way of ordering uh, food months in, in advance. Is, is that a hard thing to juggle? Um, it is, yeah. So we have to do, we have to use our men- like choose our menus and the way we write stuff down on the menus very wisely. Like literally on mine, it just says tomarat pork and then local veggies because I have no idea what I'm getting in. Uh, you know, it's very basic the way it's written just because it's too difficult to say, oh, yeah, you're definitely going to have rhubarb this week because there might not be rhubarb this week or that sort of thing. But we know if we get three pigs in, that three pigs will last us probably on a busy week and busy months, probably about two months. Wow. Yeah, we make it go as far as humanly possible, yeah. Well, take us through the process. What happens when you get the whole pig in and and uh, what do you use the different parts for? So a whole pig will come in. We normally get it completely split down the middle um, in half just to make it easier for us. Um, so then we'll each chef um, will butcher it down. So we'll stop what we're doing, we'll wipe down and then um, each chef will take a side. We normally take the, um, the head comes in whole. We work out the head later on, but normally we take the front and back um, legs off. And then we trim down, we take the ribs off um, and the bellies. And then we put the ribs and the bellies. We have a big dry aging fridge. So we put the ribs and the bellies in the dry ager. And then the chops will sort of um, clean up and they'll go in the dry ager as well. The maximum we normally dry age for is about 20, 25 to 30 days. Um, 
that's, that's like the tip of it. That's the end of it, really. And then the shoulders, um, what we do is we'll then seam, butcher those down, take out any sinew and all that sort of thing. And then we make, we either cure them as whole nice little pieces or we do, um, we make salamis and that sort of thing. With the necks, we'll then cure those down to make copper. And then, and then with the ears, we normally boil those with all the skin from whatever, from the animal. Um, we boil all that up and then we dehydrate that for crackling, for snacks and canapes, all that sort of thing. Um, and then the trotters, we boil those down. Normally we do two trotters for stocks and then two trotters for gelatin for desserts and things like that. And then um, anything which is left over from then. So we have the liver normally and the kidneys and that sort of thing. I then secretly force those to people when they don't know about it. So like I've just got, I've got a, I've got a meatball on the menu at the moment. Um, it just literally says pork, potato and onions. And it's a, it's a traditional uh, English faggot recipe. So it's liver, the leg butchered down and then we mince all that together. And it's absolutely delicious with sage and all that pan fry that off, add pork stew, pork stock. And then we cover that in like a nice mash sort of um, like mash foam sort of thing. Um, and they eat it and they say it's amazing, but you know, cause a lot of, uh, especially what we are Queenslanders don't seem to like, awful that much um so i sort of just put it in there without them knowing and then like i've now i've got this little barbecued sirloin dish on between the layers of sirloin i just put a little bit of pork liver in there which is like macerated in chili and that sort of thing so it's still delicious yeah yeah so i just and they just don't know about it until they've eaten it and they're like oh i've never eaten pork liver that was delicious do you, do you have any sort of favorite cuts and favorite ways to cook those uh, cuts that you can share um yeah i mean i love i i love making uh, we and the team all love making salami. We love doing the shoulder and a bit of the leg, and we make spice like a proper spicy salami. And the end result of slicing on the meat slicer after two and a half months, and you eat it, and it's come out like bang on. It's it's amazing. We love that. Um, I'm really uh, like pork belly, which has been dry aged, and then just because we have um, we cook off fire in the kitchen. We predominantly cook off fire. We have this beautiful fire rack, so we just put this whole belly on, and it cooks for about seven hours over the fire all day. Um, and cause it's been dry aged, the skin goes like sort of glass and it just gets all that smoky and everything else. And we just serve it on the menu that night and then we won't reuse it again. Cause it doesn't really like, we'll make sure we sell out that night. Cause when you regen it that way, it doesn't come great. It doesn't come back great. Um, but yeah, I think that that pork belly cooked over smoke low and slow is pretty special. You mentioned that you're making your own uh, small goods there. What's that process been like for you? Is there, has there been some real challenges and what do you need to get them right? Well, first off, yeah, like I've always had the idea of I wanted to do it because it's such a good way of using every part of the animal without just freezing it down and thinking I'm just going to boil this up later into a stew. Like you can get every single part, cover it in salt um, and a bit of cure mixture if you need to um, for two weeks and then put it in a dry ager and you've just got all whatever. The we As soon as I started at the uh, Beachmont, I spoke to Cleaver Salami Cabinets. Um, he was a small, uh, small little, um, sort of salami cabinet maker, maker, fridge maker. And now he's gone bananas. Like everyone's using him. I know it's every good chef in Australia is using him now cause he's doing so well. Um, but yeah, basically we've got the cabinet and in there it stores meat or curing meat at 10 degrees and slowly takes the moisture out just slowly. So when you make salamis or you do, um, like a whole leg, for example, like a cured pork leg. Um, you just cover it in salt. We leave it in there for about, we leave it in the salt for about a week, two weeks. I take it out, put it in the, in the, um, curing fridge for about nine months. And then at the end you have your beautiful, um, pork. Yeah. I mean, it's been very, we've been very creative with it. We sort of, sort of ran before we could walk. We thought we'd be clever. So like when we first got our first, first pork legs in, we're like, yeah, we'll take the bones out and we'll roll it this way and we'll hang it and we'll salt it. And then after nine months we opened it and it was all green and black in the middle. 
And we sent it to the salami guy who knows everything about salami. He's like, yeah, maybe just keep the bone in. It's much better to do it that way. Don't be too clever. And we're like, oh, okay. All right. So from now, so from now on, yeah. And then from now on we use, we do it the, you know, we, we do it the proper way and all that sort of thing. One thing I do want to crack this year is get like a, uh, an induya or duya, make our own homemade spicy duya. Like I love duya. It's amazing. But yeah, to do that, to do that ourselves properly, that's my next um, sort of challenge. For, you mentioned that you know you and your wife are avid travellers, um, but what what's sort of keeping you in the region that you are and not setting you off around the globe? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think we've got well, we've got a little two year old now, um, so she's she, you know, she's she's where she is, and um, I just I love it. I love where we are. I love the scenic rim. Um, it's just it's such an untapped resource. There's only that. There's only a few good restaurants in the region. Um, and there's so much diversity of food that we can learn and cook off, including all the native indigenous ingredients and that sort of thing as well. And, um, all that sort of thing. So I don't know, it's just, it's so untapped. So I think like we've just got, I've got a few long-term plans, um, and that sort of thing. But yeah, I, I just think there's so much scope, so much more I can do here. Well, you've become a real voice on the plate for that region. Um, since you've been here, what, what do you love about what you do? Um, the creativity of it, I'd say, um, we just get to be so day in day the way the menu, I've read the menu I was saying earlier, it's very restrictive. It just says pork and everything else on the top. We have, um, it's just called the paddock menu and we, the chefs just make it up on the day. So yeah, so we just, whatever we have like, so, cause what happens is, is to cut down on wastage. If we've got pork racks drying in the dryer and there's only one pork, la- pork rack left, then we'll put that on the paddock menu. So a guest can have um, a little bit of pork rack and they'll have another bit of pork and they can share it. So it's a share style tasting, but it's a great way to use up ingredients, which would only, you know, you couldn't use because it was just for one person or two people and that sort of thing. And then it just gets, you get massively creative that way as well. Um, so yeah, it's pretty cool. Well, it's amazing what you're doing there, Simon, and an honor to get you on the crackling today to hear part of your story. Um, please keep in touch and uh, love to catch up again soon. Awesome, well, thank you very much. This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.